This is the Sustainable Goat Podcast. We look to nature for how we should interrelate to the world. All the answers are within nature if we take the time to listen. But what we have to find is a reasonable way how to handle plastic. You know, consumers expect more. They're expecting brands to be more sustainable. They're choosing sustainable brands. These are the stories and ideas from those that will define a generation. I'm your host, Steve Kassinem, and this is our planet in focus. Growing up in Helsinki, what was life like when you were growing up? Okay, it was, well, I can't remember much of Helsinki at all, to be honest with you. My family decided to emigrate to Australia when I was four years old. So my first memories are actually getting out of the aeroplane in Melbourne. That was such a long time ago that I don't remember anything of Finland. We were the, uh, the equivalent of, have you heard the term 10-pound poms? No. In England, they used to have these, I guess, these incentives for people to migrate to Australia. And it only cost you 10 pounds, and they'd take the whole family over. So we were the, the Finnish equivalent. It's a funny thing when we turned up in Australia back then, we were put into an internment camp of all things. I went to a place really? called Bon, yeah, bon Aguila. So all the, all the migrants used to be processed through these internment camps. I mean, they wouldn't dare call them internment camps, but they were old army barracks and you'd go in there and be fenced in and you'd have to demonstrate a competent knowledge of the language, be able to demonstrate that you're financially self-sufficient. And then you go out into the community. And so when I turned up in Australia, I looked like a regular surfy kid, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes. And I had the thickest Finnish accent. And this used to drive people completely nuts. They had no idea, you know, that this is strange. He looks Australian, but he certainly doesn't sound Australian. Wow, that is so interesting. So how old were you when this happened? And kind of, do you feel that kind of had an impact on how you kind of lived your life, or at least you experienced life, kind of going from that culture to another culture and actually having to you know, prove that you can be there. Yeah. I mean, we're getting quite deep quite early, aren't we? But it's going to have an impact on anyone's life. You know, you've gone through this massive change at a young age. And I think, you know, as you get older in life, I felt, you know, I wasn't sure if it was Australian or whether I was Finnish, but I'm quite comfortable with it now. But when I was 18 to 35, you're sort of battling that sort of trying to understand who you are, trying to get some sort of identity. But, you know, when you're a Finnish family and you move abroad, you actually become more Finnish than the Finnish themselves. Because you're in a time warp. You've sort of frozen in time. When you leave in 1967, it may be 1997, but you're still behaving like it's 1967. So I grew up eating all these Finnish foods. My friends would come around and, or I'd go to their place for dinner. We'd have spaghetti bolognese or pizza. They would come to my place and we'd have liver. And you know that was a, a strange sort of, I guess, a, a cultural clash. But I mean, Australia, I have no idea what that is. Yeah. Australia is full of immigrants. It's such a cosmopolitan place. Uh, I'm just one, you know, a small drop in the ocean of people that have come to Australia from Italy, from Poland, from Finland, from England, from all over the world. And so we're very fortunate as a country. We've become very multicultural. And that's reflected in the food, the architecture and the attitudes of the people as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think that was kind of more the inspiring part of Australia that, you know, you had this clash of so many different people and you got to see so many different things that it almost kind of gave you this sense of travel kind of early? No. In fact, the exact opposite. What you do realize pretty early in life is that back in the 60s and 70s, Australia was, it would honestly, it would describe itself as a bit of a cultural desert. Everything was happening overseas. So a rite of passage for young Australians is to go overseas, is to travel to Europe or America to experience the rest of the world. So we're a nation of travelers and we have to travel a long way. Even now it's a long distance to Australia. It's um, You're really looking about 30, 32, 35 hours door to door. Wow. Wow. That's a long ways. Wow. So when you started getting a little bit older and you're kind of thinking about career, where were you kind of looking to go in life? Wow. Big question. I don't think I had any direction until probably I got to the, my 30s. Australia is one of those places where you can bounce around in different jobs. You could sort of start at the ground floor and work your way up. I actually, most of my career, I was in publishing. I really loved publishing. It was a creative industry and it was vibrant and it was very different from anything else I'd experienced. And I was still pretty much involved in publishing or in technology business related to publishing when we started uh, Skedco, actually. And when I did find Skedco, I found a new purpose. I don't want to say purpose for being, but it was it gave me a reason to work very, very hard because I could relate to the philosophy, the core values of, of uh, what we were trying to achieve. Yeah, what was it about that philosophy that spoke to you? Let me go back a bit. I met the founder, Class One Hesburgh. We played suburban soccer, so you know, pretty amateurish sort of league. We're over thirty fives competition, so a bunch of guys that would do this to stay fit and meet new friends. And it's also competitive. And we used to play on the northern beaches of Sydney. And each Saturday, you'd you travel to some far-reaching place in the suburbs, 
to meet another team at a football pitch. And what we found was we'd have 30 different single occupancy cars turn up at the playing field because this is a bit like America. It's suburban. It's sprawling sort of suburbs. And there weren't always buses to get to these places or trains. And so, as I said, you'd have 30 cars turn up in a single field and there was a parking lot of a dozen a dozen spaces. And to Klaus and I, particularly Klaus, this seemed like a really stupid thing to do. All those carbon emissions, all that road congestion, and the stress of trying to find a parking spot at the end of it. And so we thought there's got to be a better way to do this. And we were looking for a way to, I guess, plan the logistics of our Saturday football game. That's where it started, just a simple thing, a simple pain point. And we went looking for an application or something that could help us out. And we couldn't find anything. And that really surprised us. And so maybe naively at the time, we decided we're going to create something. We're going to create some sort of tool that's going to help the football team. And we're, you know, we're already leaning to the green. I mean, you know, we were environmentally aware. You know, we believed in decarbonization, all those things and recycling. And this just seemed a natural sort of extension. And before we knew it, you know, once you start planning these things, you get excited about them. You look at all the prospects. And as it turns out, we created what we think was the world's first preference-based multi and mixed modal door-to-door journey planner. And so this gave people the ability to decide whether they wanted to reduce their carbon emissions, their cost, or their time to destination. And over the years, we started to add to that. We started adding accessibility. We realized that travel is not just a mechanical function. It's about inclusiveness. So if you're in a wheelchair, you have no freedom if you don't have transport. And so we started to include things like wheelchair routing, disruption warnings. So if you're in a wheelchair, you could have the confidence of being routed somewhere and then be able to get back. Because in a survey that was conducted, I think it was in America, a lot of people didn't leave the house because they knew they could get somewhere, but they weren't too sure if they could get back. And so this is what our app sort of developed into. And in the end, I think, you know, that pain point that we looked at, we realized that all we were trying to do is make something better. And it's a philosophy that sort of carried us out over the past 10 years. We do sincerely believe that we're trying to change the way that the world moves. And after 10 years, we've got offices in Sydney, Biablanca, Munich, Helsinki, Bristol. We work remotely, which is another unique thing about a business. We don't have an office. We have the ability to work remotely, connect when we have to. And I think that sort of attracts a certain type of person who believes in the cause rather than is perhaps chasing a career or big money. Mm-hmm. That was fantastic. I mean, I love that story. I mean, really just, it's so visual thinking about that many cars in a lot trying to find parking and just being like, this doesn't make sense. And just, we should solve this problem. And usually the problems that need solving are that simple, but they just need that kind of catalyst to get it going. It's such an interesting concept. And so when you guys were starting to build it, I mean, what was the data like? Cause I would imagine it was so data heavy. Yeah. Look, we've got the guy that developed the algorithm, Dr. Tim Cooper, is brilliant. When Klaus and I went to look for a way to build this, we again, it was it was quite naive. We'd never really run a B2C business. We're both from B2B backgrounds. And we spoke to a couple of angel investors, had a look around for people that could technically build the solution because we had a concept. We spent months and months whiteboarding this concept. And in the end, Tim Cooper was able to bring that concept to reality. And when we had the product in front of us, of course, we had issues like data is everything to solutions like this. The richer the data, the more enriched the user experiences. When we started, we started in Sydney and we were very fortunate at that time, there was a big push on data standardization and availability of data from the Public Transit Authority. We learnt as we went, we started integrating private transport service providers, points of interest, et cetera. But it's still the same challenge nowadays. Data in the end will determine how good that solution is. The technology that runs it is world-class, but it's only as good as what you feed it. Hmm. So yeah, what has kind of mo- mobility been like in the past? Like whether it's public transportation, how humans kind of get around what's because mobility is an interesting concept. I mean, as technology evolves, we find better ways to get from point A to point B and it's either faster, more efficient, more convenient, whatever it is. What's kind of that story of mobility been? Yeah, I think Skegg and Mobility as a Service found each other in Bordeaux in 2016. That's the first time the term was used. And I think we all experienced what transport, particularly public transport, has been like because we've all lived through it. You know, the traffic jams and private transport vehicles. Public transit was never renowned for its luxurious comforts or its timeliness. So 
you know, it's an old world view on transport. And as a commuter, you get what you're given. It doesn't particularly suit your circumstances or your needs, but you've just got to adjust to it. Mobility as a service has flipped that on its head. And what we look to do is we look to put the commuter at the centre of the transport ecosystem. So when they're in the centre of the transport ecosystem, they have a wealth of choice. They have the ability to make informed decisions. And it changes the dynamics of how the cities behave as well. So, you know, you see nowadays with inclusiveness and particularly in public transit authorities or cities, they need to reach the dark spaces in the regional area. And so you see the innovation of new technologies like micromobility, scooters, share bikes, DRT, etc. And I think that's the major change because the old system didn't work. You couldn't build another road to get more volume into a city. You had to rethink about well, do you really want to go into the city? Or if you do want to go into the city, are there alternatives? Is it easier to do it otherwise? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So yeah, mobility has been changing a lot. I mean, I remember when scooters and apps that you could get around so much faster in that micro small area. Does that change though, how people depend on using your app? If they just know they can kind of get somewhere? Do you guys more want to incorporate that data into your platform so that way they know they can take a scooter and then get to this location? Yeah, I think we're dealing with two issues here is that the first is that integration of different transport service providers will give more options or alternatives to commuters. But what we're really talking about is a behavioral change that has to be affected. This is probably the biggest challenge for mobility as a service. There are two components for Mars to be successful. Actually, it's three. Let's put data aside the data has to be there. The technology will take care of the rest of it. But when you look at the other inhibitors to this, probably trying to affect the behavioral change is the biggest challenge. People don't like change. They'll always do it things the same way. And you need two things for that. You need access to the capabilities. And this is where a SCEDGO comes in. It provides that access to these capabilities where people can make informed decisions and try different options. You've got the access, but What's still missing is the incentives or the rewards to consolidate that change. It's very easy to slip into your old habits, but if you can consolidate that behavioral change, you're most of the way to sorting out this issue of uh, getting people out of single vehicle journeys into multimodal assets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think that behavioral change is starting to happen. I think the pandemic kind of helped people think about how they get around and where they do everything that they do. And I think that definitely changes how transport can be thought about when it comes to public transportation. See, the interesting thing is that for years and years, we've been talking about macro trends that are driving mobility as a service. We talk about urbanization, you know, 68% of people living in cities by the year 2050, I think it is. And you know, these are old sort of, I guess, data benchmarks that everyone's been talking about for years. But those macro trends have come into realization because the environmental movement's probably the largest influencer of modal change. Global warming is making people change. It's sad that we had to wait for this point to actually have this sort of wholesale migration. I mean, local government authorities, I'm talking about the cities and the towns, they're using mobility as a service as a cornerstone to their decarbonization strategies because they need to find a tool to make people change their behavior. So they see mass as a savior. They usually incorporate it with active travel programs or micro mobility promotions and the like. But they see mass as one of the primary components to changing behavior and getting that congestion off the road and particularly in Europe, trying to meet those carbon zero targets that everyone's talking about. Yeah. Well, and I would imagine also some of that urbanization pressure of that many people coming into a smaller space at the same time. I'd imagine it's also helpful in terms of just where to funnel all of the traffic and the people, not even just from the carbonization side of it too. It's just to be able to handle the influx. For example, we built an application for Leicester City Council and had a serious problem with car congestion in the middle of the city. And so we introduced all the different modes, the share bikes, and but we did two specific things that helped them achieve what they're trying to effect. And that is that we introduced park and ride facilities and provided routing sites decentralized from the city. And we also integrated their active travel program. So for years, they've had a, an active travel program trying to encourage people to walk and ride bicycles. And they have a, a relationship with Santander Bicycles with that. And to make that work, we had to nudge the algorithms a little bit to reduce the incidence of private vehicle routing and to surface the bicycle routing. And so, you know, with a solution like Skedgo, what we can do is we can localize and we can calibrate. And I think that's really important because 
the question I get asked the most is, what's the difference between you and Google? Google is an obvious one to pick because it's the generic, but the two are so different. We perform the same function, but we do it so differently. And so there is room for many of us to exist out there because we'll end up specializing in certain areas, whether it's like us, where we look at accessibility, green travel, you know, providing services for disadvantaged communities, for example. Yeah, that's incredible. Do you remember when you made the first working prototype of the software and tested it and it actually worked? Do you remember when that happened? I wish I had a clear memory of it, to be honest with you. <laughs> I think at the time, it's, I'm not a technologist. You know, I think Klaus is a bit of an engineer, but from my point of view, I'm always thinking about, well, what's the practical application? I think I was more nervous than anything. You know, when you, know, when you make something and you've got to show it to people and people always tend to pick up the bits that don't work. And as we were saying at the beginning of this conversation is when we started data, data was there, but it's not like it is now. These uh, public transit authorities are really catching up quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you didn't have an entrepreneurial background. What was that process like in really jumping into, this is a completely new venture. This is just a learning curve that happens really quickly. What was it like for you going through that process? Yeah, pretty scary. I think Klaus described me as an entrepreneur. I'd, I'd set up a lot of businesses for corporates and the like. So I was sort of used to looking for innovative solutions or, or, or trying to disrupt our own business. But this was really out, I mean, bleeding edge. You know, For years, we were bleeding edge. We were quite the evangelistic organization. I felt like I was out in the desert shouting at, at no one. And I found the learning curve intimidating from that technical perspective and frustrating from a business perspective because, frankly, people didn't get it in the beginning. And there was no compelling reason to move to mobility as a service back in 2016. People were still in denial. But what we're seeing post-COVID is that there's a lot of pent-up demand as organizations try to move into the space as they realize that this is not a gimmick. It's not a bubble. It's something that has some substance to it. So it's certainly a lot more comfortable nowadays talking to people. In fact, I saw my first mobility as a service documentary on the BBC when I was in Netherlands a couple of weeks ago, and I nearly fell off my chair because the term was being used in public. The most difficult thing for me is to turn up to a dinner party or a barbecue, and someone says, what do you do for a living? And I try to explain, and still people have no concept or perception of what it really means. And so it's good to see that the message is being echoed and, and broadcast in, in these big public forums now. Mm -hmm. So if you were to define mobility, what would you define it as? I think I'm sort of giving away a couple of things I think it is. I think mobility as a service is what it is at the moment. It is a putting, putting the computer at the center of the ecosystem. It's providing that variety. And it's the subtle things. It's about optimizing travel for an individual. You don't have to think about these things. You know, in the back in the day, you'd get out your roadmap or you'd get out your timetables. You'd have to sort of calculate how things do. This thing's doing it for you now and it's doing it quite effectively. I think the next phase is going to be fascinating for mobility as a service because we'll start to see contextual or situational journey planning. And so this is when the system machine learns or uses artificial intelligence to know what your situation is or what context you're in at the moment. So I'll give you an example is that an application will know that I've been to the hospital, that I may have a pair of crutches because I've broken my leg and it's raining outside. And it will determine what the best course of action for me is even though I may usually favor walking, it'll say it's raining, you've been to the hospital, we've got you an Uber. So it'll become predictive and it'll become a personal mobility assistant in the end. We won't necessarily have to use a handset like a phone or a computer to input data anymore. It will push this information to us on our preferred devices. And that will be a game changer. It'll take into account in a far more sophisticated manner the change times at transport nodes, the subtleties of my behaviors, my preferences, etc., And it become background for me. It'll be natural for me to be told where to go and how to go there and when to go. Yeah. And I would imagine it would also ease a lot of that decision-making process sometimes that I feel like unless you travel as a commuter, you kind of, it becomes a lot of decision-making to figure out how to get where you want to go in a more either sustainable way, or I just went to the hospital, anything like that. So I'd imagine that ease of friction would help the process too. Yeah. And there's two, I guess there's two sort of scenarios here is that your common daily commute, you're probably not doing it in the most efficient way anyway. It's habit. You probably get into your car or you catch a certain bus or whatever it is. You don't even think about changing that because you're comfortable. You know, it's predictable. You know where you're going to be. I always find it interesting when I go into a new city and I've got to work out how to get somewhere because that reminds me of the challenge of actually commuting. 
turning up at the airport, trying to work out what train I catch, where I change, what I do when I get up the other side, etc. That's when a journey planner or a mobility service solution comes to its fore because all you have to do is put the destination and the rest is done for you. Wow. And so from an impact perspective, what does that look like when a consumer decides to start to kind of change that behavior? What does that kind of look like on the impact side? It's an interesting question. I don't know if we've got enough data yet to measure the impact. You know, we did a white paper a little while ago, and it's interesting. In the United Kingdom, 60% of one to two mile journeys are still done by a car. So you put that into context, and then you start to think of small changes, you know, someone going park journey. And then you can actually calculate the carbon emission reduction. You can calculate the cost differential. But I think we're at the beginning of really seeing the value of this. And I don't think we've got enough data yet to give an accurate picture of what it looks like. I think it's encouraging at the moment. I think the social impact is probably much larger than the statistical impact. The social impact you already see in places like Leicester, where they have this active travel program, where people are walking to work. They are bicycling. And that makes an enormous difference to everyone else. And they don't realize it yet. How much do you think you're also affected by just world changes in the sense of you have more people working from home now? So you have people questioning whether they even need a vehicle. Does that kind of change that process a bit faster for you guys in in terms of what you are providing? Because I mean, maybe their preference is more they now go places either just to grocery shop or to maybe go into the town for the day, but maybe not commute. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I take my daughter as an example. She doesn't have a driver's license, doesn't want one, never will. And that's because I think the world is very different from when I was her age. So you've got the ability now to commute. When you come back to the pandemic situation of people working from home, people are still traveling, but they're doing it in a different way. The real winners out of the pandemic, for example, are the micro-mobility providers. It's the scooters and the share bikes. They've actually gone through the roof because more people are adopting that as a transport mode is they don't have to cycle all the way into the city. Or they may use mass as it, it should be used, they'll use it as a multimodal tool. So they may walk to the train station, catch a train, get onto a scooter, get off the scooter, then walk or whatever it is. So, you know, when you ask someone what is mobility as a service, they probably couldn't tell you, but they're practicing it already. And there's also, I think, I talked about core values before. More people are traveling with conscience. I think you see that a lot nowadays. People are questioning air travel. As an example, they're looking at the best possible travel option without doing any damage to the environment. So as with most changes, they start off slow, but the momentum builds very quickly. And I think mobility as a service in next 12 or 18 months is going to be very different from what it is at the moment. Do you think it's going to change also on the city side of things? So, I mean, traditionally, if mobility is you know, public transport, you get on a bus, you get off a bus, and then you get on a scooter, you have a lot more opportunities for private companies to introduce new mobility ways. I mean, you have the one wheels, you have scooters, you have all these new solutions on how to get around. Do you think it's kind of on the cities to kind of open the doors for all these kind of mobility solutions to come in? Or is it kind of more the city to kind of adapt to what's happening? Realistically speaking, I think it's going to be a bit of both. We're seeing it different experiments in different parts of the world as, as to how local government authorities react to this. You know, we're at a crazy time at the moment. It's like when any anything new comes along, there are so many different iterations and versions of things that uh, we're having all these colourful flowers bloom in this sort of paddock of mobility as a service, and it'll settle down. There'll be a consolidation and there'll be a, a template to follow. But at the moment, I just think it's great that you've got certain cities that are approaching it differently from others. But the goal is the same. They've all struggled under the weight of congestion and pollution, and they are genuinely trying to make a better life for the constituents. One of the other things that we can introduce in Mobiliza Service, we're looking at with a couple of clients at the moment, is a safer walking, just to provide safer walking routes to align their routes to brightly lit streets and CCTV cameras, as an example. So the opportunities are endless, actually. It's the data that's inhibiting the development of all this stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. And where does really that data funnel happen? I mean, is it more collecting of the city data? Is it private data? How does that data flow work to where you can actually improve the product too? Because you mentioned AI and obviously that needs data in order to improve. It is a challenge because there's disparate data sources. There are some industry standards that are formed and I won't go into the acronyms, but you've got certain standards for public transit, for micro mobility, et cetera. But it's patchy in most cases. 
because it's drawing the data from a legacy system. You know, buses are a great example. You know, they've been around for whenever. And the challenge we've got there is that they've never really thought of data as an asset. Their assets are vehicles, their customers, and they have a certain route. So data was never really something that they put a big emphasis on. And now that we find that we need this data, it's patchy because it's starting behind the pack. And it's expensive for them. So you can't really turn around to a bus company and say, give me data tomorrow. It's going to take them a while to get the systems in place and to be able to collect the data properly and so on. So you basically have the ability to scale as fast as needed. It's really just whenever the cities can adopt enough data. And we see this all the time. Sometimes we'll go into a city and we can get from signing a contract to having a mass solution out within about eight weeks. In other places, it might take us eight months. It's a combination of having access to data, you know, getting consensus on what has to be built and how it's going to be built, et cetera. That timeline's reducing all the time. In fact, our average build time is about 12 weeks for a comprehensive mass solution. Wow, that's incredible. And where are you guys kind of located right now in terms of where your solution's actually working? Well, we've got examples in the US. We work with a company called Phoenix Mobility Rising. We've got an app in northern Arizona for a community organization called N4. So that serves disadvantaged constituents and also for paratransit. Our home base is Australia. We've got multiple applications there. We recently launched in Japan and we've got applications in several European countries and the UK. UK is actually an interesting location at the moment because the government has been providing a significant amount of grant money to these cities to introduce carbon reduction strategies. So you're seeing an expansion of mass in that area at the moment. It's quite quick, actually. It's uh, quite comprehensive. Yeah, I was actually going to ask which country do you believe is the most advanced, if you will, when it comes to mobility? They're all different. It would be unfair of me to say which is the most advanced because (laughs) I think they're doing different things. Yeah, look, the Australian market is a great ecosystem. It's self-contained. It's good data. and But, you know, what it probably lacks compared to Europe is the commercial clout to drive a lot of this creativity. Probably the most vibrant area for flexing the muscle of mobility as a service, trying new things, is probably the Netherlands at the moment, maybe France as well, because you've got the ingredients there, you've got the technology, the skill set, you've got the population, and you've got the other funding to do it. In fact, in places like France, Netherlands, and Belgium, they've even introduced legislative change to encourage multimodal travel. And so this has spawned a lot of B2B businesses that are providing mobility to service solutions. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. I always wondered about that because even within your own country, each city will have different mobility solutions that are, some are more advanced than others, some are more convenient than others. So I'm always interested in hearing, you know, for someone who is in the industry as deeply as you are to which one is the best, if you will, at different things. Um, that's an interesting thing. I think the US markets will take off. It's only a matter of time. There are a number of POCs that are in play there at the moment. We saw some funding of the transit agencies a couple of years ago, and that enabled them to introduce mobility as a service as a concept. America is a lot like Australia. The car dominates its fast distances. And I think in the end, that's the only thing that will really slow it down. I think in the urban capitals, those uh, sort of highly populated areas, mobility as a service will naturally evolve. But it'll be an extension to the existing legacy businesses, in my opinion. Yeah, I know this is quite a ways off in terms of timing, of course. But when it comes to mobility solution of self-driving vehicle, and now suddenly, you know, you can have one vehicle for your block and everybody gets dropped off at work. What does that kind of do on your end in terms of thinking about future? I know it's a long ways off and I'm may not even be in the plans. but No, it's not that far off at all. I mean, we've integrated uh, autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles into solutions already. I think an indicator is if you look at uh, demand response transit, DRT at the moment is playing that role, except it's got a driver in there. So, you know, you will see a smooth transition to AV. I don't think that's going to be a drama. I think the challenge for that industry is probably a legislative one around health and safety, liability, things like that. But the technology is already there. If you go to any of these mobility as a service conferences or exhibitions, guarantee that there'll be an AV provider that's taking all the delegates from the local bus stop or the local station in an AV vehicle all the way to the conference center. So you see the concept already because they plan it the way that you'll stop at certain stage points and you just have to use your imaginations. But sometimes people get on. And so, as I said, it's already there. It's in proto, not even, I wouldn't even call it prototype. It's in beta. There are, there are, in some places, it's in production. People are already using that mode. 
Do you think that'll change public transportation? Will that just be the same problem that we have now of cars and traffic? Like if everybody goes, okay, I don't need to take a train or you know anything. Now I don't even have to think. I can just get in this thing and it'll take me here. Yeah, and I don't have an informed opinion about this, but it is a subject that people talk about is that ultimately if the demand's there, you're still going to have the same amount of cars or close to it and they're all going to be just circling the, the block, you know, that sort of argument. But I think the industries, I talk about public transit, and private transport service providers, they will adapt to meet the demand in a way that's most cost-effective. That will happen. So I don't see that as the problem. I think we'll see public transit in particular is already adapting. You know, in places in the UK, they're changing their model to a franchise model. You know, they're not so interested in owning the assets, but they want to manage the logistics. And so I think that's something that I'll be looking at with interest because that changes the dynamics of how people think about public transport. And so your public transport may include a DRT. It may include a scooter, but still public transit. Interesting. So yeah, that's an interesting concept. Thinking about just cities actually stepping back from the asset ownership of all the buses and vehicles and employees and and just focusing on how do we optimize this city and allow the other people to actually privatize it. That's a cool concept. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you know, the cities and the transit agencies have always subsidized a certain part of transport. I think this is probably an opportunity for them to disperse the costs in different ways and to change the dynamics. It's not my area of expertise, but I think we're, you know, as humans, just basically we're, we're quite, you know, very adaptable. They will find a way to solve the problem. Yeah. What would be your ideal mobility system, if you will? Like, do you believe that there's a most efficient way to, or most sustainable way to get from point A to point B. I know there are some variables in terms of distance and where you are and stuff, but... I'm going to argue that there is no ideal mobility as a service solution. I think the key is the localization. What I found over all these years is that every city installation, every transit agency installation, they're all different. They use the same common building blocks and technologies, but their reason for being, their objectives, and the way they function... The change might be only subtle, but it makes a massive difference to a local user because the familiarity that we're trying to break with behavioral change has to provide them something that they can relate to. So I think we'll still continue to see a wide variety of solutions. The technologies themselves will get smarter and slicker and the cost will come down. So it'll be more accessible by everyone. I think that's what probably one of the things we'll see over the next few years. What's your most exciting solution? right now for the mobility market? Is it the software frontier or is it hardware? I think hardware is an enabler personally, and the hardware will change over time. And you know, the software, the software development will meet the demands of the audience. I think it's the conceptual side of the business that sort of sits in the middle. I think I love going to these conferences and listening to some of the smartest people who are into this, this industry talk about what it's going to look like and how they think it should behave because it shows engagement from a broader range of people. We were evangelists, and now we're starting to see these people that are coming in with some really cool ideas. I think the conceptual side of mobility as a service is really going to blossom over the next few years. Yeah. And where do you think there is the most development in those solutions, kind of in the world, most forward thinking in terms of developing the practical solutions? I think I go back and point to Europe at the moment, Netherlands, you know, France, Brussels, et cetera. Because that innovation is driven by funding. If they're enabled to create these things, they have the freedom to really extend their capabilities. Because to date, until recently, the question was, can you validate the mobility as a service model? And what we're seeing now is that, yes, we can validate that model. Perhaps not in the consumer space yet, but in the B2B corporate spaces, B2G government, we can certainly validate it. We can actually calculate the cost savings. We can calculate the profits there and you know that as i said was primarily driven out of legislative change in parts of europe to get that point where people felt the confidence to invest into those concepts and ideas because they knew that they had a stable piece of land to build that concept on so do you kind of feel that change and shift that needs to happen that behavioral change for there to be legislature kind of needs to come from the consumer right because they're the ones voting on it you know how does that work in terms of when you're trying to behavior change and do that and you know that if the government provides a solution for the people, but the people need to recognize there's a solution to vote it for the government. That's a really tough question, actually, because I think it is a bit of all. But I can only go through my personal experiences that public pressure will motivate a government organization to change something, whether they make the right decision with that change or they follow the old 
path is is probably the question. What you need in the mix are those evangelists that will lead the way. And look at a guy like uh, Sampo Haytanen from Mask Global, and he's a true evangelist. Whether he has the model right or wrong, we'll find out later on whether we've got it right or wrong. But he went out and he single-handedly brought the cause to the fore. And I have to admire him for that. So I think it's a mixture because your politicians will listen to influencers, they'll listen to the public, but they'll also listen to the people that hold the strings. So I think we've got that point where it's it's unstoppable now, by doing a service. The concept's out there, it's validated, it's working, and I think we'll all benefit from it. Yeah, it'll probably be a little bit of a back and forth where, you know, one kind of goes up above the other and they kind of raise each other up at the same time, uh, which I think might be a a good way to do it. Do you feel like on the preference side of things, do you feel the preference is more for the convenience or for the time or for the sustainability? Because one of the things that I've noticed, at least in the sustainability side of things, is if the consumer is not technically open to it, you know, I'm choosing to do this, you know, what is another motivating factor that the consumer would benefit from it, whether it's price, cost, speed? But what are you guys kind of finding on your side? What is the preference? Yeah, so this is where the behavioral nudging comes in because you can influence a consumer's behavior. But if we just took all those external influences out, what we typically find is that someone will open up one of our apps and go, that's cool. They won't go anywhere near the preference settings initially. They'll just leave it at the default setting and they'll start playing around with it. Those that tend to go for reducing their carbon or increasing their active travel or whatever, they're usually the early adopters and they're usually driven by a core value or a specific need. So if you are already into active travel and you find an app that introduced it, of course, you're going to adopt the full spectrum of capabilities for that. But if you're a mother of two and you just want to get to the shops, you're probably not going to go near that. The ergonomics or the stickiness or the usability is is always going to be an arms race. The choices that people make, they again will be influenced by external sources, whether it's the press or it's incentives or it's whatever, their friends, and that over time becomes a viral situation. We are seeing an increase in carbon reducing journey plans because of the nature of the world at the moment, because it's in the news every day. So people are far more aware of it. And it is a primary selling point of our solution when we go into our customer organizations. Yeah. How much of what you guys are doing is education or how much of it is just, okay, here's our solution and just adoption? Yeah. You've struck on something that we probably learned later than we should have is that it's one thing being an evangelist and talking about the benefits of Mars, but to go in and educate people is another thing. So, you know, education is an inexpensive exercise as well. So we do rely primarily on our customer organizations because they're the ones that want this solution, but we do find ourselves almost as consultants in the industry, explaining how this works. And we do this through the press, business press. We do this through opportunities like this, just to talk to people about it. Because you can talk about education in how do you practically use an application and try and explain the mechanics and the benefits that way. I think education itself is almost saying, I think it's more effective when you say, hey, have a look at this. These people are using it and that's why they're using it. So it's almost justifying its existence. I think people are far more likely to look at it then and say, well, I'll, I'll have a, a try of it. You know, these apps, we talk to not just our customers, but others. Probably the biggest challenge is not to get someone to download it, is to get them to come back on multiple occasions. It's like any app out there. It's easy to download an app and have a look. And, you know, some people make the decision in five seconds, which is probably unfair, but that's the reality of how these things work. Yeah, definitely. And when cities are looking to adopt this, or you're looking to kind of expand the footprint of any of the applications, what's usually the deciding factor for the end user? Is it the fact that more people will be using the transit or that they can provide a better solution for it? What's kind of the draw for them? Are you talking about our customers when we expand the cities? What's driving them? Yeah. Yeah. There's a common theme there is that they have a challenge. And that challenge is not one they've made up themselves. Someone in government or higher up in the organization has determined that they've got to reduce their carbon and their congestion. That is the primary driver for the introduction of mobility as a service in towns and cities at this stage. Towns are a little bit different because you may have a cohort of user or a specialist need. So it might be a rural location, or it could be, as we've done with Phoenix, it's it's serving disadvantaged or disabled communities. We should never forget that the applications that work 
are those that are purpose-built. They deliver a purpose, a reason for being. So if you just go out there and put an app out there and say, hey, this is really cool, use it, it's not going to work. But if it's out there for a purpose and it delivers some real value and people benefit from it, you're in a much better position to realize the value out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And how's kind of been the growth of the application for you guys in terms of growth in cities, users, feedback? I mean, how's the experience for everyone? It's a bit of a story here. When we, you know, I talked before, we didn't have a commercial model when we started. We didn't know what we we're going to do. We launched a B2C application. We decided that we can launch this thing globally. And we launched a product called Tripco. Now, Tripco is available in 600 cities. That's more than what we service at the moment. We never got to really realize the value or the commercialization of that product, because, but we still retain it because it's great because we can assess user behavior and so on. So we don't necessarily look at volume as a true indicator of our success anymore. We can set up a new city in three days. It's it's not a big deal. What we're trying to do is establish great use cases and showcase customers in certain customer groups. So we service corporates, transit agencies, and cities. And what's really important for us is to serve a customer like Transport for Greater Manchester or Leicester City Council or the Transport Department in Queensland because we know that makes a material difference to people's lives, but also profiles us on the strengths that we have. You know, we can really flex technology muscle there to show what these solutions can do. I think the volume will come. There's no doubt about that. The next phase of our development is making this accessible for everyone. As a platform business, we want a single person to be able to come to our website and transact and get something out of it, or to be able to have people can self-serve and create their own solutions. So if you're an outback city in Australia or a Nordic village in the north of Finland, you should be able to have access to these same capabilities to be able to develop your own mass solutions. Mm -hmm. And what was that process like when... I mean, you built this platform and put 600 cities on it and we're B2C and this was the commitment of the business. What was that moment like when you kind of had to go the other direction? Yeah. And that was 2016 when we, you know, Mobiliza Service and Skedgo collided as a point of realization because we could demonstrate we could successfully launch this application globally in hundreds of cities, but the appetite wasn't there. We were, as I said, bleeding edge. We were so far ahead of the market that there's a yawning gap no one was going to buy this solution. And that's demoralizing when you think you've got something fantastic and no one wants to talk about it and no one wants to buy it. Then we realized that our technology is so good that, in fact, what we should be doing is enabling people that want to do this. So we started off with the early adopters, organizations, that corporate organizations. I mean, there's Optus in Sydney was our first client and still with us. And the reason they wanted it was not to make money. They wanted to deliver a better experience for their staff. This was a HR initiative. And so you pick up a corporate like that, suddenly other people start to look at you in a different light. Wow. That's incredible shift, by the way, to do that kind of in a very nice, smooth way. Um, I wouldn't say it was smooth, but it was, <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. In retrospect, it's always smoother than it was in the moment, for sure. Yeah, those pivots are always really important, though. But I mean, I think that's also part of the process of growing the business, though. I mean, you're trying to solve a problem and you have to kind of open some doors and kind of see which is the best solution for your, you know, what's your best application for the solution that you come up with? Yeah. And you've got to be really honest with yourself as well as the time. And these are cliches. And I I hate using cliches, but, you know, there's that term to disrupt your own business. I mean, we're constantly doing that. We're constantly trying to lower the cost of entry. We're challenging ourselves to deliver different feature functionality. It's not always thought up by us. Our customers are very creative. Sometimes our customers come to us and they've got an awesome idea and we're willing to take some risk develop that. And I'd hate to lose that enthusiasm and the creativity and innovation in the business. Mm -hmm. And how does it feel kind of running, I mean, more of a startup type of culture? Because it is different than, you know, a bigger corporation and how that kind of works. You guys are able to kind of pivot as do you guys kind of want to stay in that zone of being able to do that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. As I said, we don't have a physical office. We have key stakeholders in the business and we, I describe ourselves as very inclusive and democratic. A lot of decisions are made on consensus. If I come up with a concept or the CTO comes up with a concept, we pitch it to each other. Not like in Shark Tank or anything like that. But I mean, we throw it around and everyone's got the same volume of voice in the business. And so when the decisions are made, it's, I wouldn't say we clash, but you know, we challenge each other, but the decisions are made quickly. They don't have to go through some sort of process and 
out the other side. It's decisions usually made on the spot if we've got the data available to us and it's a well-reasoned argument or it doesn't take long after that if uh, we've got to put some stuff together. Yeah. How important do you think that is to make that decision quickly? rather than, you know, sit on it for a long time and analyze it more. I mean, I know some decisions you sit on a little bit longer than others, but, you know. It's that risk and likelihood scenario, isn't it? I mean, some decisions are a little bit more important than others, but we've always believed in make quick decisions. It's much better doing uh, quick steps rather than long strides, because if you do decide you've gone down the wrong path, it's not a big deal turning around because you've effectively just lost a bit of time and less money than you would if you went for a a long labored decision on a big concept. So a lot of our stuff is iterative building. In fact, we encourage our customers to do the same thing. It's not uncommon to go into on a tender or a customer organization and um, they'll want to form a Mars launch. You know, they want something massive and we'll always tell them that they're better off doing this in staged or phased approaches because they will change their mind. They'll change their mind because they won't really know what the result is until their customers start using it. So if you've got a beta version out there that your customers are using, you're going to learn a lot more, get a lot more data in a short period of time than you would taking that risk going out for the whole build a year later. Yeah, I love that approach. I think that's way more, I mean, it is what your business model is, put the consumer at the center of the decision-making process and the software process. So I think that's brilliant. What's kind of your hope for mobility of the future? Like, What do you kind of see as mobility of the future? We talk about seamless, gateless, ticketless travel. And I think there are certain parts of this industry that are specifically targeting them. And so the scenario is you start off with an airport, you walk into an airport, you need to validate your presence. You know, you have the boarding pass, passport, multiple gates that you go through, similar to a railway station, even a bus you got to tap on. I think what will change everything is that when you're wandering around the city and you're hopping from one mode to another on your way on a multimodal leg that you're not actually stopping to do anything you're just progressing gates will open for you they'll pick up your gps location because you've been validated and authorized you'll walk through those gates you'll catch your train and so on it doesn't sound like a big deal but the efficiency impact the stress impact the ability to plan for local government authorities or transit agencies to load balance. The benefits are endless. I look forward to the day where I don't have to carry my credit card or my ticket or my pass or whatever, and I can just commute from here. This might sound far-fetched, but would it be great if I can get out here, just hop on a bus, get up to the railway station, go to the airport, hop on my plane, go to Sydney, hop off, get on to, into a hail, and I don't have to reach for my wallet once. It's validated the journey for me. Is that something that you could potentially build into your software that that validation process with the transit systems or is that something where you kind of leverage you know apple pay or whatever that is yeah i think this is a collaboration in fact one thing i didn't mention is that in one way that um, my business service has changed is that tenders in particular used to be big massive documents and, and a single entity would win that tender you know to supply the services what we're seeing is a trend towards consortia tenders where there's an obvious preference to having multiple players participate in the tender. And that's because I think there's a realization, very hard to find one company that does everything well. So we're great believers in collaboration. We collaborate with what would be perceived by competitors. We collaborate with industry bodies, with different industries and and organizations. So a lot of the business we pick up is with other companies because they'll bring something to the value proposition that we don't have. We can plan, book, or pay for services. But we may choose to collaborate with a ticketer because they've invested 20, 30 years into the development of their solution. We're not going to try and replicate it in three months or three years. Yeah, I like that. Almost make the back-end solution for mobility almost like the front-end where you have a lot of collaborators all great at what they do and make a better solution for everybody. I love that. That's awesome. Do you remember your first consciously sustainable purchase that you made, that you purchased a product or made a behavior change consciously. This is really embarrassing for me because <laughs> my wife is very much environmentalist to the point where she, you know, she does all that stuff of like picking plastic off beaches and stuff. And I always thought the thought, but never walked the walk. And it's my wife that changed my behavior completely. So I follow her down the beach and I end up being the guy that carries everything's picked up and, and stuff like that. So, you know, I can't consciously remember when it happened, but I think it dawned on me that. You know, you can talk about it, you can think about it, but if you don't do it. So my most recent decision was I no longer own a car. So, and I found that a really interesting exercise because now I understand what the challenges are. Everywhere I go is mobility as a service. Even when I'm back in Australia and Sydney, everywhere I travel here, 
I may have to fly in there, but once I get there, only catch a taxi, for example, if I really, really need to, I'll end up using two or three modes to get to every appointment or hotel or whatever it is. So what was that? Wow. Sorry. What was that transition like? So when you got rid of the car, you're used to this mobility solution and now you change it. Was it just time or what happened? No, it's, it's a bit like being a bit of a fake. You know, I was with Skateco and I'm, I'm talking about the benefits of mobility as a service and I have a car. It didn't stack up. I mean, if I was really put under scrutiny and I was questioned, it just didn't make sense. So it was difficult. No word of lie. It was a challenge sometimes, but because I believed in it, it made me feel good. The more I felt good about it, the more I did it. So now it's just natural for me. I don't even think about it. I don't think about using a car. My cousin picked me up for a lunch the other day and I got into his car. It was an absolute luxury. I did miss it, but I felt a bit smug and you know good about not having one. But I don't think the car will disappear. There is a place for the car. I think it's more about how we use them. There's no point in taking a single vehicle journey unless you have to. And that's where it comes in useful. But I think in most cases, there's nothing wrong with sharing a car ride with two or three people. So I don't think I'm sort of trying to kill cars or anything. I think this is more about that behavioral nudging, making those informed decisions, changing your behavior for the betterment of everyone around you and yourself. How long do you feel like it took you to feel like you didn't think about it anymore? A tough question. Because I tried not to think about it. So I, yeah. didn't, I, 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 didn't, <laughs> really, I, I didn't really sort of analyze. I, I didn't ruminate about it or stress about it. Sometimes I cursed it because I'd missed the bus or you know, I'm stuck somewhere. But they're the painful moments. But the real nice moments, the pleasurable moments is that you get little wins. Uh, you start to engage with society again. You'll have a chat with someone. You know, uh, you'll go, it'd be a scenic walk, a scenic bike ride. You get different benefits from multimodal. It's not necessarily just about time to destination anymore. It's about how you travel. So you get to make these decisions. Yeah, I love that. And where is your favorite place in the world to enjoy nature? I'm torn between the northern beaches of Sydney because that's I surf, so I, I get to go in the water all the time. And nothing better than taking the board out there and you'll see a pot of dolphins come along side the board and which is is really cool but i've got to say living up here in finland is fantastic every time i go on a business trip into europe when i come back to Helsinki, it's like an oasis it's like a green oasis everything is clean you know the air is fresh it's covered in forests and, and lakes it's it's a beautiful place up here yeah i love that well john thank you so much for just taking the time and diving into all of these things on mobility i think the topic is fascinating it's a subject in sustainability that isn't talked about enough and I think it's an exciting forefront. And I just want to thank you for being a part of this. No, thanks very much. I've really enjoyed this, actually. It's been wonderful, actually. Thank you for listening to the Sustainable Goat podcast. I'm your host, Steve Cassinum. With each episode, we can further define what it means to create a truly sustainable and resilient future. I think the new status is to show that, that you actually care. You want to drive change and you want to be part of a sustainable future. People fight for what they love. And let's uh, really all start for a small but significant shift in the way we live, we consume, and we plan our life. Join us at sustainablegoat.com.